Good morning. It is good to be with you this morning, and I would ask if you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 11. We will be reading verses 15 through 19. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came. And the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple, and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we come before you this morning in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that during this season we celebrate his arrival here on earth. We recognize the importance of the incarnation, that God was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we praise you, O God, that you did not remain aloof and distant from us, but you drew near to us in our humanity and in our suffering and in our sorrow. And Lord Jesus, we praise you this morning that that in your humanity, you took upon yourself our sin and you bore the curse and you carried it to the cross. And there, Lord, you suffered and bled and died for us. We praise you that you were declared to be the son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead, by the Holy Spirit. And that we who are your children bear witness to this fact that Christ came, that he died, and that he was buried, and that he has risen from the dead. But Lord, we thank you that that's not the end of the story. That the story doesn't end with our conversion. That it doesn't end with our salvation here. But rather, you have promised to fulfill all your, your, your word to your children Israel and to return. Lord Jesus, we praise you. We thank you that there is hope for us that is more than just hope beyond the grave. It's not just a hope of a ghostly existence in some far off place, but there will be a new heaven and a new earth and you will reign and 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 the nations will be made to prove the wonders of your love. And we just thank you, Father, for this opportunity we have to meditate on your word this morning. We ask your blessing on us. We ask your help in understanding it, in communicating it, and in applying it. For Lord, we pray this in the name of your Son and for your glory. Amen. Amen. Hear the word of the prophet Hosea. For the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land, because there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God. In the land, there is swearing and deception and murder and stealing and adultery. They employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns. 
and everyone who lives in it languishes. Now, I know that that was given to the prophet Hosea hundreds and hundreds of years ago in a specific context to the, na- context of the nation of Israel. But as I read those verses of, about a month ago, it struck me that it could be a prophecy to our nation, that it could be a word to our country and to our people, that there is a case against the inhabitants of the land, that there's no faithfulness, no kindness or knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing and deception and murder and stealing and adultery, and there's violence that leads to more violence and bloodshed follows bloodshed, and the land mourns, and everyone who lives in it languishes. Hasn't it been true over the last year and a half that that's like just the best description of the United States and truly the world itself, that we've just been languishing? That under the curse of this pandemic, we've languished. We have seen businesses close. We've seen livelihoods ended. We've seen dreams crushed. And just when you think it can't get any worse, we turn another corner and it does. How about this for a milestone in American history? 100,000 lives lost to addiction from April of 2020 to April of 2021. 100,000 ODs. The land mourns and everyone languishes. We could talk about how the nations in our world are tormented in the face of the ever-changing virus. Now we got the new bogeyman, Omicron, coming our way. We could talk about wars and rumors of war. I told my students this past week, I said, listen, guys, I have some bad news for you, but I have a really sick feeling inside that Russia's going to move against Ukraine and China's going to move against Taiwan while Biden's president. And I would not be surprised if they don't make their moves before November of 2022. So you got to get ready to be thinking about World War III. Or maybe not, because the United States is diminished. Our friends do not trust us. And our enemies do not fear us. And of course, the the changing nature of our society and the great socialistic progressive dialectic of social revolution is moving forward. And we watch it as Christians and we say to ourselves, what has happened? Because I remember, I remember not that long ago where the objective of social revolution was tolerance. You know, the ability and willingness to allow the existence, occurrence, or practice of something that one does not necessarily agree with or like, particularly opinions or behavior. That they were, we were told that we need to tolerate one another, to live and let live. And once that needle moved, like the government's response to the pandemic, the goalposts changed. And it was no longer tolerance that was being embraced, but rather acceptance to believe or come to recognize as valid that we need to see these behaviors and lifestyles 
as valid. But then, of course, that goalpost changed too. From acceptance to approval. And then finally, celebration. If you don't celebrate the behavior, if you don't celebrate this point of view, well, it's not just that you can be tolerated anymore. You're actually evil. And suddenly, right is wrong. And good becomes evil, which the prophet Isaiah, which we referenced this morning, talked about. As one author observed, I just read this yesterday, and yes, the corporate overlords every June, please do send me an email from every company I've ever patronized telling me to enjoy a transgender burrito at your business or to drop hashtag ride proud on your exercise bicycle or scoop up my love is love non-binary tote bag. And such gestures of celebration are the least I can do to compensate for my hegemonic bigotry. Tolerance, acceptance, approval, celebration. And of course, as the church in the West, we've been ill-equipped to really deal with this loss of cultural dominance, relevance. We've not really mentally or socially or culturally prepared to deal with how the culture has changed, how it's shifted underneath our feet, that we don't really understand. Like there's a kind of mourning that's going on where where we used to understand that, yes, I understand the United States wasn't a Christian nation. I'm not stupid. I know that the founding fathers were a blend of deists and Christians and that there was a mixture of all kinds of different political philosophies, both the Renaissance and the Enlightenment that went into the founding documents of our country. I understand those things, but there was a universal acknowledgement of providence, that there was a universal understanding that there was a God in heaven to whom we must give an account. And of course, it was also understood that in a general way, in a general way, the culture kind of reinforced some Christian values, but no more. And I think that as a society, we are wrestling with the consequences of a social revolution. But what does it mean? Well, they say it's always darkest before the dawn. Now, I don't know. Honestly, I don't know whether we are living in the last days. I really don't. I don't know whether there is like the wheel of time that God is turning is actually moving now to that ultimate conclusion of human history. I'm not sure that the events that are unfolding before us are actually a precursor to things that are going to be uh, dramatic and the end of history. I don't know that. I don't know whether the second coming is like tomorrow or whether it's in 200 years. But it is remarkable to me that as I listen and I look at the news and I read the paper, well, I read the paper, I'm going to read it online now, right? No one reads a paper anymore. 
the ideas that are being circulated, the ideas of governments and their authority and the, the, the movement and the fear and the, the longing for somebody to fix this world and just come on the scene and bring it together, well, it can't be any stronger. And the idea that there's like some void that like traditional religion and values have just been thrown out. And there's nothing there to replace it. And mankind is craving for something. Desperate for a hero. And you think about the 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 events that we talked about and oh I remember growing up in the 70s how significant it was like the you know the whole how Lindsay and the brave new world and the second coming and looking for the signs and how much you know significance was placed upon upon Israel and the fact that Israel was created as a nation and I tell you I still that's pretty significant they're still here those Jews but think about all the other things that have happened Think about the fact that in the book of Revelation, it talks about how that when the witnesses who stand opposed to the Antichrist are slain, that their bodies are then draped in Jerusalem for the world to behold. And the world rejoices and watches their bodies, the whole world. When was that possible before the internet? And yet, as we look at these things and we come to the book of Revelation and the passage before us, we have to understand that there are lots of different ways that we can interpret Revelation. There's lots of different ways you can approach Revelation. I mean, we can focus on deciphering the symbols and trying to understand what the symbolic language means. We can focus on trying to divine the timetables that Revelation suggests. We could be caught up in the idea of trying to predict the future and see, as it were, God's unfolding of history and try to figure out from that time period what's going to happen next on God's calendar. But I think that as valuable all those things are, what we have to recognize is that when John wrote the book of Revelation, what God was doing was telling the church a very important truth that he was writing to a church that was under attack, that John was writing to a community of believers that were facing opposition from the empire of Rome itself and from division within their own communities. That God gave them this revelation at a time where Rome was no longer looking at Christians as just another sect of the Jews. And for much of the early part of Christian history, the opposition to the church came from the Jewish community, not the Roman government. That the Roman government just sort of looked at the sect of the Nazarenes as just another one of those Jewish sects. But by the mid-century of the first century, Rome began to notice Christians differently because they weren't mostly Jews anymore. And they weren't mostly a sect within the Jewish community. That more and more members of the empire were following the Nazarene. And the past that Rome gave the Jews 
was no longer going to apply to these people. And I talked about it with my students a couple of weeks ago where we were talking about Christianity in the early century and, and how that Rome was a pluralistic empire. Rome was a pluralistic empire. It had all kinds of ethnic groups, all kinds of ideologies, all kinds of religion, and Rome supported all of them. The only thing that Rome required was that you pay homage to Caesar. Well, if I'm a polytheist, if I'm a pantheist, if I'm an atheist, do I really care lighting incense to Caesar and saying Caesar is Lord? Of course not. What difference does it make? He's just another one of the many deities or non-deities that exist. But for the Christian, there was only one Lord. And so given the choice between Jesus as Lord and Caesar as Lord, the Christians would say Jesus is Lord. And I one of my students this year just raised her hand and said, Mr. Barrett, I don't get it. Why didn't they just say Caesar is Lord? Like, what's the difference? And I said, because for them, the truth mattered. And for them, there was only one king of kings and lord of lords. And they would not bow to Caesar. It's to that world. It's to that world where Rome has turned its official face against the church. It's in that world where Nero will light Christians as human torches for the entertainment of his guests in his gardens. It's in that world where Christians will be hounded and harassed, persecuted, and driven from their homes and their businesses, and even killed. It's that world that God gives the apocalypse, the revelation. And of course, when you look at it from that context, right? When you look at it from that perspective, the question we have to ask ourselves is what do we draw from it? What was the ultimate message that God wanted to give his people in this time, in this way. And it reminds me of a story I heard years ago. It's so cliche. It's so like, I can't believe I'm saying this story again, but it applies every time I think about this. It's about a young believer who was being mentored by an older Christian, and the older Christian was encouraging the young believer to read his Bible. And so the younger Christian was asked by his mentor, what are you reading right now in the scriptures? And he says, I'm reading Revelation. And the mentor like, okay. <laughs> In his mind, he's thinking, good luck with that, you know. Not my first choice to recommend a new believer to read the New Testament. Give me Mark, give me Luke, give me John, give me Romans. Revelation? Oh, boy. So a few weeks go by, and the mentor says to the new believer, he says, so, how's it going with Revelation? Did you finish? He says, yeah, I did. Well, what did you think of it? He says, oh, man, there's a whole lot of crazy stuff going on in there. There's a lot of stuff I don't understand. But I'll tell you this. The one thing I know, we win. We win. And you see, when you look at this 
book and you think about the passage we just read this morning, what we want to draw from this in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of a society that is turning its back more and more away from whatever you think it should be and whatever you think it was, the point remains is that, look, you want to get yourself in trouble. You know what? They're like, I, we heard a couple of weeks ago, we went to a, 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 a pregnancy center luncheon, breakfast actually. And the speaker was a woman who had survived abortion. She wasn't a woman who had an abortion. She was the fetus that survived. And she told her story and she said that when she was growing up, one of the things that she was just thankful for God and his salvation and his mercy in her life and being adopted and being loved and being accepted and being chosen because she was eventually put up for adoption and her adopted parents always told her three things that she needed to remember is that, that she was loved, that she was wanted and that she was chosen. And she said that their parents taught her about that. And they said, that's the way God is with you, that you are loved and you are wanted and you're chosen. But she said that she was kind of like a wallflower. And then all of a sudden, God propelled her into this ministry of talking about two of the most controversial subjects in the world today, abortion and Jesus. And I thought to myself, you can add transgenderism, homosexuality, all the LGBTQ plus topics. There are the new morality. It is a world of stuff. That's just like the third rail for us as Christians today. And you know, as we enter into the Christmas season, as we enter into Advent, there's a, a realization that, that as you look back, Advent has always had a forward look. Like when we consider the role of the season right this time between now and christmas we spend our time singing songs and carols the song we sang this morning, joy to the world the lord has come let earth receive her king well the world did not receive her king. the world did not receive her king. the world did not accept the messiah he came to his own, the Bible says, but his own did not receive him. And yet we sing, he makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. That hasn't happened yet. Christ is not here making the nations prove the wonders of, you understand? Making the nations prove. It's, it's not like a suggestion. It's not like an option. He's not giving them, oh, listen, would you like to know about the glories of my righteousness? No. He makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. I mean, how many of you have ever gone to Handel's Messiah in July? Never, right? Doesn't happen. It's a non-thing. Handel's Messiah, not in July. And yet, what is the greatest number that everybody knows? The Hallelujah Chorus. 
We sing the hallelujah chorus at Christmas. But what is the hallelujah chorus? For the Lord God omnipotent reigns. The kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You see, Christmas is not just a backward glance, but a forward expectation. The kingdom of the world. Think about this. First notice in verse 15 that it's not the kingdoms of the world. It is the kingdom of the world. And we must recognize that there are not many kingdoms. It is not the United States and China and Russia and Great Britain and Israel. There are not many nations here that this is talking about. It is talking about the kingdom of the world. And the king of that world is a usurper. The one who deceived the first king and queen of planet Earth into handing over to him the right and authority to govern this world. Which is why Satan is called the prince of the power of the air, the god of this age, the god of this world, of whom John wrote, "In under him the whole world lies under his power. That world that is that world that is in opposition and at war to God and his people. That world that seeks to conform us into its mold. The world that Jesus warns us about with its cares and its things. The world that John says, do not love this world because it is passing away. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. That world, that rebellious, sinful, decadent, corrupt world is also the world that Jesus said, God so loved that he gave. And what did he give? He gave his one and only son. This world that's constructed out of the rebellion in our hearts, this world that is constructed by the very treason of our natures, this world that will not accept the will or word of God to govern our lives, this world that is so carefully constructed, full of its idols, its pleasures, its distractions, and its toys, this world that is going to be turned over to our God and his Christ, this world he loved in spite of its sin this world of people he loved in spite of their rebellion in spite of their treachery in spite of the fact that they were dead in their trespasses and their sins lost in the dark wandering alone without hope and without god in this world This world he loved so much he sent his son to be the sin bearer, 
the fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham centuries before in you, Abraham, in your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. In that messianic promise given to our first parents, even as God exiled them from the garden, he said to the woman, your seed will be at war with the serpent. He will bruise his heel, but he will crush its head. That one prophesied in the Old Testament who came in fulfillment at the right moment in history to be your Savior and mine, to go to the cross to bear the penalty for our sin. That world, Jesus loved. But what a world it is, right? I heard the bells on Christmas Day. Their old familiar carols play, and mild and sweet their songs repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And the bells are ringing, peace on earth. Like a choir, they're singing peace on earth. In my heart, I hear them, peace on earth, peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. You see, if the story ended in Luke chapter 1, There'd be no antidote to that. The angels singing, peace on earth, goodwill. Where is the peace? Where is the blessing? The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Then the rang the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. We give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign and the nations were enraged and your wrath came and the time came for the dead to be judged and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. Who is on our side? Who is our God? Revelation is written to a people under attack, both from without and from within. And John wants them to know, the Holy Spirit wants them to know, the Messiah wants them to know, our Father wants them to know that God is on our side. Amen? Amen. And that the ultimate outcome of history is not going to be written in Washington, D.C. It's not going to be written in Beijing. It's not going to be written in Moscow or Tel Aviv or Jerusalem. That it is already written in in heaven. From the Garden of Eden to the Garden of Gethsemane, God had a plan. And no matter what Satan did, it could not stop that plan from unfolding. For as the Lord has said, who can resist him? 
He is in heaven. He does as he pleases. And the nations were enraged. Look, the nations are still raging. They rage. They scheme. They take counsel together against the Lord and against his annoying saying, let us tear their fetters apart, cast away their cords from us. We will not have this man rule over us. Take him away. We want nothing to do with your Jesus. We want nothing to do with your Christ. And what is the response? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He mocks them. Listen, he who laughs last, laughs best. And you can be sure God gets the last laugh. And your wrath came. And your wrath came. I think sometimes in my life, in my desire to be gracious, and in my desire to be merciful, and in my desire to be kind, I have often downplayed the significance of sin. I know I've done that in my own life. But I'm sure I've also done it in my thinking about others. The Apostle Paul says, therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality. He's saying, look, as a Christian, you need to like, Consider yourself dead to these things. They're not to have any hold on you. They're not going to have any attraction on you. They're not supposed to possess you. You're not supposed to pursue them. So these things, immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, no hold on you as a Christian. For, he says, it is because of these things, the wrath of God will come. The wrath of God will come. So no, God isn't accepting of sin. God doesn't celebrate sin. God doesn't approve of it. God doesn't tolerate it. Because of these things, the wrath of God will come. In verse 19, we read that there was a temple of heaven. The temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple, and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and earthquake and a great storm. And it's a very strange verse, because the chapter begins with the temple on earth, and it ends with the temple in heaven. And what is the relationship here? And this is what one commentator writes. He says, there is a unique relationship between the word of God and judgment. It is God's word which establishes the righteous requirements for obedience and underwrites the definition of righteous judgment, the appearance of the Ark of his covenant emphasizes that which will be used as the standard 
for judgment. It is because of man's willful disobedience and rebellion in the light of the standard of the law that God's righteous judgment is required. His wrath is measured by the distance between the contents of the written requirements in the ark versus the actions of sinful men. You shall not murder. If you've been following the news at all, you know that there is this momentous nexus right now at the Supreme Court regarding Roe v. Wade. That the Supreme Court, Supreme Court, by all appearances, seems poised to overturn the Roe v. Wade ruling which made abortion on demand legal in all 50 states. You understand that if that happens, there will be howling in our nation. Millions of Americans will be lamenting, scheming, plotting to reverse that decision. And all I would ask is to consider what are you asking for? You are asking for the right to murder unborn children. The time for the dead to be judged and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets, the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and the great. The Bible teaches that there is a time of judgment coming for every person who has ever lived. Joe Biden will stand before Jesus Christ. Xi Jinping will stand before Jesus Christ. Joseph Stalin, Mao Zedong, John Doe. Jane Doe, you, me, we will all stand before Jesus Christ. The time for judgment is at hand. For those of us who are covered by the blood of Christ, there is no second death for us. There is no fear of the great white throne judgment, for our judgment will take place at the judgment seat of Christ. And at that judgment, we are here told that it will be a time of reward for his bondservants, the prophets, for his saints, and to those who fear his name. You know, if you read the book of Revelation, you know that the prophets, they get abused and killed. The saints, they get beheaded. And those who fear his name are driven into exile. And what the Holy Spirit is telling us, it's worth it. For he shall reign. And when he reigns, he will reward. But the dead will be judged as well. And you see, the dead is a term the Bible uses for those who've never trusted in Christ. 
for those who've never believed in the good news of salvation through his name, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And in Revelation, we read of the great white throne judgment where the books are opened and the dead are judged out of those books and they are rewarded according to their deeds. We sometimes make the mistake of saying, well, all sin is the same. And that's not really true, technically. On one hand, it is, because it doesn't take any special sin to separate us from God. In that regard, sin is sin. I lie, I steal, I kill, all separate me from God because I've broken the law. But God does not look at all those sins the same way. Each has its own reward. And the dead are judged according to their deeds. Because sin matters. And so as we enter into this Advent season, it reminds us of the arrival of the babe in Bethlehem. And all the good news that's associated with that. Because as Paul would write to the Thessalonians, we are not destined for wrath but for deliverance through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So just as the Advent season reminds us of the arrival of the babe, so the Advent season should prepare us for the coming of the King of Kings. What blessing there is to those who love his appearing. Let us pray. Our gracious God and our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity we've had to meditate in your word. We pray, God, that you might remind us that we are called to be light in the darkness, that when the world would seek to conform us to fear and intimidation, that it would try to conform us into its thinking and its philosophies, that you would give us light to see clearly what is true, what is real. We pray, God, that, that we might take to heart this idea that, that serving you is serving the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, that we are on the winning side, regardless of what the world says or does. Lord, thank you. We confess that we've often loved the world. We've often loved the things in the world. We confess that we've often been consumed by the cares of this world and too often conformed to its image. We would ask that you might break us free of ourselves and of the clutches the world has on us and help us, Lord, to see through to you clearly. We pray this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.